Good morning, everybody. Uh, hope you had a, a great weekend. Um, the big game was played. Cal won. Sorry. You thought USC-UCLA, but Cal actually beat Stanford. The bigger game. I call it the bigger game. But uh, I know all the rest of you probably are watching the other game. But uh, welcome back. We are completing a fantastic series called Conversations with Jesus, and we're talking about how to love God, right? What have we been talking about for last over eight weeks? Not a trick question. How to love God. In fact, we have covered a lot of territory. We have been looking at gospel passages. So we're really looking through the lens of Jesus to talk about what does it look like to really love God. We've been diving deep on this subject. In fact, I wanted to show you where we've been. For those of you maybe visiting or you're just checking us out or maybe you've missed a couple, get out your phones right now. You have permission to get out your phone. Do not check your email. I want you to get out your camera and take a picture of the next two slides because I want to encourage you to go back and review all of these fantastic passages that describe how to love God. Matthew chapter 22, it's where we started. Remember in verse 33 and 34, that we are to love God with all of our passion, with all of our intellect, and with all of our hearts. We talked deeply about that, the great commandment. And we also looked at Matthew chapter 16, 13 to 20, Peter's confession and Peter's denial and loving Christ through this experience of his life. And then in John 15, 11, how to abide in Christ is to love Christ. Then we looked at Luke chapter 7, and in Luke 7, 36 to 50, the woman with the alabaster oil with this amazing, ridiculous love that she had. She poured out what was most valuable to Jesus, to give to Jesus as a demonstration of her love. All right, everybody take a picture. Next slide, next slide. Here we go. Here's the next set. Woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. This is scandalous that Jesus would forgive this woman and restore her dignity. That's what it looks like to love God, is to embrace a God that loves that much. In Matthew, in John chapter 9, the first 38 verses, we also talked about the blind man who received sight. And the blind man was the only one who turned around and thanked Jesus for the miracle. A demonstration of love. Matthew 13, 44 to 46, the parable of the pearl of great price. The value of Jesus is the love that we have for God. And then finally in John 21, this morning, Peter, do you love me three times? We're going to talk about this, uh, this love that Peter develops for Jesus through this encounter, this final lasting encounter. So I would encourage you to go back and look at these. We selected these. I mean, these are what we consider to be the greatest gospel passages that describe God's love and how we love him. This morning, the, the power of three loves. It's a story of Peter being recovered, restored, and recovering from his experience of denying Jesus. And now he meets, Peter meets Jesus on the shore and gets restored. It's, it's a lasting impression. It's a lasting encounter that has a great impact in Peter's life. And this would characterize Peter with the risen Lord in John 21. Lasting impressions, lasting impacts. Have you ever had one of those? 
Have you ever had one of those kind of moments where it just surprised you, but it happened and it, cha- it just changed your whole focus? It, it restored you in a way. I had one. I had one last year when my father passed away. Many of you know the story, but my grandson, my first grandson, was born on the same day that my father passed away. And we were at my dad's side. He had suffered a stroke and could no longer eat. He couldn't talk. He could not move half of his body. And we were in the process of saying goodbye to him. And it was it had come time that my daughter and her husband, George, were to deliver their firstborn. And so we were going to transition from my father's bedside to the hospital to be with our children. And I was saying goodbye and said, Dad, I've got to say goodbye to you. I'm going to go be with Brooke and George. And my dad could use one of his hands, and he waved me in, as he did. And I could see that he wanted me to come in close. And as I came in close, his lips tightened up. And he couldn't speak, but I said, Dad, what do you want? Do you want to give me a kiss? And I leaned in close, and my dad moved his head just enough, and he kissed me on the lips. I was all alone. It was my moment with my dad. And it was the last time I ever saw my dad on this earth. He kissed me. He gave me a blessing. 57 years of living with this man as my father. All the adventures, all the things I've learned, all the questions I had about his love were answered in this one moment. It was a lasting moment where I truly understood that my father loved me. Have you ever had one of those moments? Peter did. It's in John 21. And here's the story. After these things, Jesus manifests himself again to the disciples in the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifests himself in this way. Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And they, said, and they said to him, we're going to go with you. They were out all night, and it says that they caught nothing. But when the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus cried out, children, have you caught any fish? And they answered, no. He says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast And they were not able to haul in the number of fish because it was a great number. Therefore, the the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, turns to Peter and recognizes Jesus and says, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard this, he put on his outer garment, threw himself into the sea, and swam to shore. The disciples brought the boat and the fish, dragging it along to the shore. When they got out of land, out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and a fish placed on it. And Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish which you have caught. Simon Peter went and drew the net. Large, large numbers of fish. In fact, they numbered them, 153. They were so amazed, they actually numbered the fish. Jesus says to them, come have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question whether it was the Lord. They knew it at this point. And Jesus comes, takes the bread, gives it to them, the fish, and they have a meal. 
And then in verse 15, Jesus does something quite astounding. He turns to Peter and he asks them one question three times. Do you see that? Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then tend my, my lambs. He says to him second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, you know that I love you, Lord. Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter grieved because he had asked him a third time, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know that all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my sheep. In this passage, I believe what is described is the blessing that Peter receives that assures him of the love of God that motivates him to do what he's going to do the rest of his life. And this morning, we need that same blessing. You and I need the blessing of Jesus in order to accomplish what you're going to accomplish next in your life. And it's in this passage. And it happens over four stages. Peter falls into the love of Jesus over four stages. And each stage stage takes him deeper and deeper into the love of Jesus. It's the same four stages that you and I go through. And we're going to look at each one of these. But before we do, I want to say something to you. And it's what I've learned from this passage that I can't stop thinking about. You can serve without loving God. But you cannot love God and not serve him. That's what Jesus is teaching Peter. There's a lot of people that serve. There's a lot of people with compassion. There's a lot of people that care about the social ills of our society, but they don't love God. They don't understand what that love really looks like. And they keep on serving, but they serve for another reason. It doesn't come to the true compassion. It doesn't come to the heart of why we are called to do what we are called to do. But when you understand love, you cannot but serve. Does that make sense? That's what this passage is teaching. I want to talk to the young people, millennials. I had a lot of them last service. Because I think you're a very, very important generation. Our young people are critical to the future, not only of the church, but of society. We know that. But let me talk to something. Let me talk to an issue. Because I think millennials are really in tune with not only the environment and things that affect our world, but also the social issues of our days. We've seen that play out in Hong Kong, haven't we? I mean, the, the, the young people are the ones that are protesting in Hong Kong right now. And these young people are protesting because they want justice. They want a fairness. They want a system that works for the people. That's what they're fighting for. Back in 1997, when Hong Kong became part of China, 
They wanted, they knew they were, they were joining to become one country, but there were two systems of justice. And they are fighting for that system of justice right now. Young people. Usually the youngest people are living for the higher ideal for change. They want justice. They want equality. They want to fight for the social ills. But I want to challenge that zeal for a minute. I just want to challenge it. With true motivation and true passion. See, when we do, as a church, corporate things... Now, what we just saw demonstrated this morning with this, the Hunger Heroes and our children, they're getting it. They're getting it at a very young age, how to have compassion for other people. They're, they're, they're seeing that. But I want to talk to millennials a minute. And when we have these events where we go to Moffitt or we go to Reignite Hope or we go to Martin Home to care for these men that have just been released from prison that are starting a new life and all the other things we do whether it's Sharefest, I don't see a lot of young people. I just don't. And I want, what I want to do this morning is I want to connect an ideal of compassion, serving with true love that motivates you to do the very thing you really want to do. Does that make sense? I want to challenge that and ask the question, what is the motivation behind what you do Because if you really have the motivation and your love is changed, you really will do what you say you're going to do with your life. So let's look at these four stages. The first stage is limbo. We all get there in our life. And then there's a sign of life. Something happens. And then Jesus shows up on the shore of your life. And then you're consumed by love. Those are the four stages of love. We all go through them. Whether you've been a Christian for a long time or you're new to the faith or you're just developing your faith, you will come to a point in your life where you're in limbo. We're going to look at that one first. Notice the passage, John 21, the first three verses. It says that Peter and the disciples went fishing. Jesus now is resurrected. His ministry's over. He's been crucified It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to many, over 500. In fact, Peter's already seen him before. Peter, knowing in his own mind that he had denied Christ, wondered what the future looks like. I think I made a critical error in my faith. Or I've come to a place where I've been challenged to really think about what I believe because of what just happened. Something profound has just happened in my faith development. And it's put me in a place of limbo. And what we often do at that point is pull away. But what do we see Peter doing? The most critical thing when you are in limbo is what? According to the first three verses. The disciples were together. Never underestimate in the first stage the power of friends to keep you anchored when storms come. Never underestimate others. Peter says, I'm going fishing. I don't really know what's next. 
I don't know what's happened to this whole thing. The whole ministry's blown up. Jesus is now resurrected, but it's not like it was before. And we're not moving forward. What's happening? It's a waiting experience, and you'll get there. Believe me, you'll get there in your faith. We all will go through a trial, believe me, maybe two or three. And that may be exactly where God wants you. Right where you are in limbo, wondering what to do next. Maybe you were hurt by somebody. Maybe you were hurt by a church. Maybe you've pulled away from God. You've pulled away from church. And you've pulled away from Christians. And what we learn in limbo is don't pull away from others. When our son was in the hospital, I would take walks up the canyon every day. I would take the dog. Sometimes I'd go alone. We didn't know the outcome. We didn't know whether he was going to make it or not make it. Eight months in the hospital. So I'd ask God, are you going to heal our son? Do we get him back? He says, I'm not going to tell you. That's between me and him at this moment. All I'm focusing on right now is you and me. That's what I heard the Lord say. I found a very interesting devotion. It's called Thoughts from the Diary of a Desperate Man by Hendrickson. I thought, well, that's a great title because I am a desperate man. And I began reading, and about 10 or 11 into these uh, entries, he talks about how God pulls away from mature believers in order to help them stand on their own two feet. In order to develop your faith, God will have to pull away from you in order for you to stand by faith rather than by sight. It has to happen. It's just the way it is. And so I remember that, and I reached out, and I wanted, I had friends around me, but I needed more help. And that's the one thing I reached out to, and I wrote him a letter. And his son wrote me back and said, Dad has passed away, and I'll tell you why. I asked, why, how did you get the wisdom to write the words you wrote? And he the son, old eldest son, told me we lost our youngest brother. And that was the precipice for these devotions and this high level of maturity that this man developed in his faith. You need to be wait. You need to be patient. You need to wait. And maybe a little crying. And what I find in this scene, we don't see it But I know Peter's grieving to a certain degree. I certainly did. I grieved. I wailed. And it was probably the best thing I did because it makes you most vulnerable. In fact, C.S. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia has Aslan. If you've read the series, you know Aslan. And there's a scene where one of the children is sad, frightened. And Aslan turns to the child and says, Crying is all right in its own way while it lasts. But you have to stop sooner or later, and then you will have to decide what to do. I like Lewis's approach to this. Go ahead and cry. Cry it out. You're in limbo. Give it a good cry. It's healthy. Crying is emotionally healthy for Christians. And yet at some point, you got to stop and decide what you're going to do next. And what we find in this scene is they're together, and they're fishing, And then stage two hits, the sign of a new life. 
something happens. Jesus calls out. They don't know it's Jesus. He calls out and says, why don't you try the other side? This has already happened before in Luke chapter 5. But this one's totally different. And in this case, the fish, they catch it. They bring the fish in. They can't believe it. They look at this, and John's the one who says it. You see it here in 21 verse 7? It's the Lord. See, it's a sign of life. And when something happens, some miracle, some way that God breaks through in limbo and gets to your heart and communicates, I'm still here, are you? That's when John says, it's the Lord. That's the miracle in your life. I won't forget that in the last three years. I remember the night before my surgery for my colon resectioning. Never been in the hospital before. Never had surgery. I didn't, didn't seem real comfortable to me. And I had four dreams. I had four dreams. All four of them was God's presence saying, I got you. I'm carrying you through this. It was, it was a sign of life. I remember, and I've told this story when I was having my heart attack um, this last February. And I was up in Lake Arrowhead, and I was lying on the couch having a heart attack. And I looked up, well, it was all by myself, and I looked out the window, and for some reason I blurted out these words, I'm not going to die today. I just knew it, and I knew they weren't my words. I wasn't trying to give myself a pep talk. I wasn't trying to, well, you know, just toughen up, Todd. You're not going to die today. It was not one of those. It really wasn't. It was a clear sign. I don't know why I said those words, and the minute I said them, I go, where'd those come from? I know where they came from. It's a clear sign. And here's what you do when you get that sign. You cry out, it's the Lord. That's what you do. You praise him. I heard one of the best sermons by Bill Johnson from Bethel Church a couple weeks ago, and it was on praising God. He actually, what he did, it was, it was profound. He, he got this in a dream, and then he woke up and he read Isaiah chapter 60, this one verse in verse 18. It says, no longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin and destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The wall around Jerusalem, which is safety, is made up of walls and gates, and the wall is salvation and the gate is praise. What God does is salvation. What you do is praise. And they form the, the, the outer perimeter of your faith. And without both, you're doomed. And so what I heard, what, what I heard through Bill Johnson as he preached this message is that God's job is to save. Our job is to praise. Then he jumped to Revelation 21. I don't know how he got there. 21-21. The 12 gates were 12 pearls describing what heaven's going to look like. The gate around is going to be there. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold as pure as transparent glass. The, the presence of Jesus is the glory that will light the earth. And in it, you'll see the walls of salvation, and now the gates have become pearls. And how do you make a pearl? Struggle. Difficulty. So when you, struggle happens, when something hard happens, what are you supposed to do? Praise him. 
Because praise is the greatest defense of discouragement and depression and the sidelining of your faith. It brings you back. It is the Lord. It's what we need to do. And then we move to stage three, Jesus on the shore of your life, John 21, 7 to 14. It's the longest section of this passage where they, they recognize. And so I love Peter. They're 100 yards away. Peter, just bring the fish and the boat in and you can be with Jesus. But no, what does he do? He had stripped himself of the outer garment to fish all night. He puts his outer garment on and what does he do? He jumps himself, he jumps into the sea. Why? Because he wants to get to Jesus. It's this Jesus on the shore of your life, and all Peter wants to do is get to him. Remember back in Luke chapter 5 when, 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 when Peter had gone back to fishing, had been called into discipleship, and now, he is, now here he is fishing. Jesus comes. They don't catch any fish. Throw out your net. They throw out their net. They catch all this fish. Peter realizes that Jesus is the one who did it, turns to Jesus and says, Oh, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I am so ashamed that I am not following you anymore. Get away from me, Lord. Now it's changed. He goes the opposite direction and jumps in the water and swims 100 yards to shore to get to Jesus first. And what does Jesus invite him to do? Come, let us have breakfast, verse 12. See, it's biblical, that breakfast, right? John 21, 12, there it is right in the scripture. Come, let Jesus told you, come, let us have breakfast. But here's the clincher. With Jesus. Have breakfast with Jesus. Because in that moment, the fish are on the bread, and they, they consume this food, but they're moving to our deeper intimacy with Jesus. The ministry's over. That phase is gone. We're done with the earthly ministry. I'm going to go, go be with the Father. I'm in my resurrected state. It's no longer the same anymore, guys. Something's going to change here. And right before it changes, they have an intimate conversation. The most intimate of conversations, you have to have, you got to have one of these. You got one of these? Are you having one of those? Are you jumping out of a boat? Are you still in the boat? Or are you swimming to shore, going to Jesus to have breakfast with him? That's what Peter does. I read a fascinating book this, this year. I'm going to save that for the next point. But I am going to tell you another boy, book that I read. And I brought it with me, Crime and Punishment. Dostoyevsky wrote it in the 50s when C.S. Lewis was reading, writing Mere Christianity in the UK. And I'm going to give you the punchline of this book, so it's a spoiler alert. But, you know, if you haven't read it by now, you probably won't read it. Anyway... Um, you know, this is one of the vintage Russian library. It was $2.95. But it's a profound book. Um, the, the Russian authors, you know, Tolstoy, Solzhenitsyn, these guys are amazing. And they're always writing about Christianity and, and they're bringing it into secular life. And it's a story. It, it's, it's an amazing story of, of Raskolnikov. And Raskolnikov falls in love with Sonia at the end of his life. And um, he's committed a crime. Crime and punishment. He's really an indifferent kind of a person. He's not a bad person. He's just apathetic. He's one of those people going through life, and he's numb. And so he's poor, and so he decides he's going to um, uh, rob this 
poor old woman of her jewels and ends up murdering her and someone else that's in the apartment at the same time and runs away and finally confesses and goes to Siberia to prison to serve out his sentence. And there Sonia comes to visit him at the fence of Siberian prison. And he's emotionless. He's self-centered. He's dead inside. He's capable of achieving, but incapable of loving. Yet Sonia gets sick and doesn't visit him for a while. And he's rather indifferent about it. Whether she comes or goes, it really doesn't matter. It's kind of the way he's approached life. Then he realizes he's actually in love with her. And he's pacing the fence, waiting. And now it matters whether she comes or doesn't come. He realizes that he's fallen in love with this woman. He's gone to a deeper level. Jesus on the shore of your life. And the very, very last paragraph is telling. Because here, here's the story. This is Peter. I'm going to give you the last paragraph of the book. Is that terrible or what? But that is the beginning of a great new story. The story of gradual renewal of a man. The story of his gradual regeneration. Of his passing from one world into another. Of his initiation into a new unknown life. That might be the subject of a new story. But our present story is ended. The renewal. The transformation of a man that has now fallen in love at a deeper level. And that's the point of this story. Jesus on the shore. And instead of running away, he runs toward. See, that's how you'll know whether you're a religious person or a Christ follower, by the way. You'll know the difference between what it looks like to be a religious person. Because when you're religious, it's all about getting things right. Because when you don't get it right, you're going to run away from it. You're going to run away. You're ashamed. You run from church. You run from God. It didn't go the way I planned. The Jesus that I was worshiping isn't really the Jesus. You you had the wrong image. A Christ follower runs to Jesus because they get the gospel of grace. Because Jesus is on the shore going, come to me. Let's have breakfast. Do you have time for breakfast with Jesus? Let me tell you how you can tell whether you have time and whether you've spent time in breakfast with Jesus. What is Jesus like for breakfast? Think about it. Can you answer that question? What does Jesus like for breakfast? Think about it. Metaphorically. The final stage is to be consumed by love. And you see that in verse 15. Breakfast is over. It's time. It's now time to understand whether you get love or not. And Peter is there, and he doesn't know what's going to come next. And Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, do you love me more than all these? And he's referring to the fishing and all that, and the fish and and in the whole life that was ahead of him, that he could make for himself. Or get a true compassion because he really gets the question, do you love me? Because something's going to come. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then tend my lambs. 
And they go on three times, back and forth, back and forth. But here's the interesting thing. you got to get this. This was spoken in Aramaic. It was written in Greek. We have the translation in English. So let's, we don't know the Aramaic and how it was spoken, but we have the Greek because we have, the origi- we, have the, we have manuscripts, plenty of them, to go all the way back to the source. And the way in which it's described is that Jesus asked the question using agape. Agape is unconditional divine love. Peter, do you have a divine love for me? Unconditional. Peter responds, phileo love, which is a familial, emotional, affectionate love. And Peter says, Lord, you know that I affectionately love you. Peter, do you divinely love me with an, with an unconditional love, sacrificial love? Lord, I'm affectionately in love with you. My whole body now sees you as my Savior. And some would want to distinguish between the phileo and the agape and say, well, Jesus was calling to a higher love and Peter chose a lesser love. No way. What Peter was doing was taking a divine love and taking it deeper into his heart. And that's the point. Phileo love is an affectionate love that can only be developed when you spend time with Jesus. In fact, one commentator says this. Trench says, at this moment, when all the pulses in the heart of the now penitent apostle are beating with passionate affection towards his Lord, this word on the Lord's lips sounds far too cold to very imperfectly express the warmth of his affection toward him. The affectionate love, because now Peter is affectionately connected with his Savior. That's the kind of love we need to get to with God. See, I love my kids. I love them sacrificially. I don't care what they do, I love my kids. You do too. For those that have kids, we have adult kids that are married. One has a child. And even when they... When, when I, even when they, they aren't interested in my advice, I still love them. Because they're adults and they can choose whether to accept it or not. That's good boundaries. That's healthy boundaries. I, I'm available for advice. I'm, I'm going to love you no matter what. But if you choose not to benefit from my advice, that's okay. That's, I still love you. But let me go deeper. Because here's the conflict that we often have in our home. Denise and I. It's the affectionate love that gets me. I am so affectionately in love with my children that I will do irrational things for them. And this is the conflict. You're being irrational. Come back to your senses. But I am so affectionately in love with my children that I would do anything for them. That's where Peter got. That's, the, that's being consumed with an amazing love. I promised I was going to tell you another story. And uh, that story is the story of a of different kind of life when you don't get there, but you serve him well. It's the story in silence. If you've read the book, 
especially. It's about these Portuguese missionaries during the 1600s, the Shimabara Rebellion in the 1600s. And missionaries were banned from Japan, and some remained, and they were sought after to be martyred. And Christians were often brought before the magistrates to, to, to apostatize, to deny their faith by what they did was they put out an image of Jesus, whether wood or carpeting or some kind of an amulet or something, and they'd set it on the ground. It was an image, a face of Jesus, and you would have to step on the fumi-e. And the fumi-e was the image of Jesus. And that's all they had to do, and they would live. And many chose not to step on the face of Jesus. One particular priest ends up in Japan searching out the true story of Cristóbal Fiera, who they believe had apostatized. And they couldn't believe it. And now Rodriguez is, is now imprisoned, and he's hearing over and over again Christians being martyred and tortured. And he finally steps on the fumier. And he apostatized. And the book at the end is dramatic because he deals with his faith He lives, but he never really lives anymore. Because he can't get over what he just did. You and I can get over what's happened in our life because of the grace of Christ. Because we're so consumed by a love that is so far greater that now we're in this selflessness state. And it's born out of love. Peter recovers, he's restored, he repents, he comes fully before the Lord in his sin, and there he is, and all is forgiven, and he is drawn in by a real love for Jesus. You know, the rest of the story is in uh, verse 18, where Peter and, and Jesus have this discussion about the future, and he, re- he gets to know his future. Very few people get to know their future and what's going to happen. Um, in Homer's Iliad, Achilles gets to know his future. But he's half God and half man. He's a, fictici- he's a fictional character. It's, it's mythical. But in the story, he actually gets to see the future and he gets to pick. Do you want to stay and live a long life with your family and your wife? Or do you want to go fight? the Trojan War, and live as a hero, and die as a hero with honor. That's the question that's proposed to Achilles. In this situation, Peter doesn't even take the other option. Because you love me, you will do what it takes. You're going to love people. You're going to tend to the flock. You will find a compassion that is so great. And by the way, You used to be, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself up and walk whenever and wherever you wished. Basically, you got to do whatever you wanted to do. You were youthful. You're a young person. Go live your life for yourself. But now you're consumed with a greater love, and you're going to have a greater purpose in your life. And by the way, at the end of your life, your arms are going to be stretched out, and you're going to be crucified. And the next scene we see with Peter is he's standing up, after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, preaching the gospel, risking his life. 
That's the story of Peter. That's what true love looks like. So this morning, we get to go to the communion table. So worship team, come on up. And uh, we get to have a little breakfast with Jesus. And so as you go to these stations, I want you to imagine yourself swimming or running, if you don't like swimming, like you want to go there. Jesus, I want to go meet with you. And Jesus is there. His body is present. And what he offers you is not shame. Because of your abandonment, your issues, the past, there's a new future. Will you be consumed by his love? And when you receive the communion, you're receiving the love of Jesus. You eat his bread, his body, and you drink his blood. You are drinking and eating pure love into your soul. So, Father, we go now. Maybe we worship a little bit and then we go. Maybe we just sit to think of the impact, the powerful, powerful impact that this passage has had on our lives, and then we'll get up and we're going to go be with you, Jesus. Take us there and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.